Okay, so this morning we continue our, our mini-series on 1 Corinthians titled The Power of Example. The Power of Example. And this morning we're thinking about the power of example through the subject of complementarity. Complementarity, which is the title of our sermon today. We're going to be looking at the next part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 2 through to 16. And this passage is going to raise a lot of questions for all of us. So the best thing for us to do today is just to get right into it. So if you have your Bibles, do turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. And as we read this passage together, do be asking yourself the question. This is very important for us as we read this. What is the main thing that Paul is getting at here? What is the main thing that Paul is getting at here? And what is it he's trying to communicate in this part of his letter to the Corinthians? What is it he's trying to communicate in this part in his letter uh, to the Corinthians? So we read these words from Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. Paul says this, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is ahead of every man and the man is ahead of the woman and God is ahead of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is the one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word today. You know, my guess is that for a good number of you, what stands out within this passage? What is perhaps loudest of all that Paul says within this passage? In verses 2 through to 16, is this idea of women having to wear head coverings. Maybe I'm wrong, but this is what jumps out at me jumps out at me as being most prominent, as being the loudest theme when I read these words from Paul. But the more and more you read this passage, the more and more you realise that the head covering issue that Paul is speaking of here is actually pointing towards something deeper, something that is actually more important, something that is in fact directly applicable to our lives today within our own context. And it enables us to also be more effective, more faithful and more fruitful for God. You know, it's very easy to read this passage like you can with a number of different passages within the New Testament and just write it off or assume you know what it means or even worse, intentionally ignore what it says. And make no mistake about it, people and churches will avoid looking at this passage. You're not going to find a topical sermon series in a church and head coverings 
is one of the weeks of focus. It's just not going to happen. And the main reason for us avoiding this passage is that it's a difficult passage to understand. Let's be honest about this. We find it hard to handle these verses well. Let me share some common responses to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 2 to 16, which I believe result in us not handling it well and in a manner that's not biblically faithful. The first response I want to highlight is this. People can often say about this passage, this passage is about women wearing head coverings in public worship. Therefore, women should wear head coverings in public worship. This was the attitude of the overwhelming majority of believers and churches right up until the early 20th century. 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16 was more often than not taken literally. Paul says women should, not, should wear head coverings during public worship. Therefore, all women should wear head coverings during public worship. Maybe this is a tradition that you came from. And maybe this is a tradition that you're still a part of today. Perhaps you see this passage as a very positive thing. You see it clearly in scripture. You live out these words literally. And obedience to this word in this way can only ever be a positive thing. I believe that that would be us mishandling this passage. And that's something we're going to look at in a little moment. But maybe your response alongside this perhaps might be something very different to that. Perhaps it's this. Number two, this passage is all about a tradition in Paul's day. Therefore, it's irrelevant to us today. It doesn't apply to the gathering of God's people in worship in 2021. People often read this passage today and they see this headline, Head Coverings. And they say to themselves, how could this possibly relate to us today? But instead of digging deeper to see what God's word actually has to say to us from this passage... The response would be this, not for me, no thanks. Let's move on to another part of scripture, what we might subconsciously think as a more important passage of scripture. You know, I think people's attitude can so often be one of, I've got so much going on within my own life. I don't need to be worrying about whether or not women should be putting something on their head when they walk into a church building. Therefore, I'm going to assume that this passage is irrelevant. Again, this would be a wrong response to this passage. And some might even respond more strongly to this passage and say this, number three, this passage is all about the oppression of women. It's not only irrelevant, it's wrong, it should be avoided at all costs. This is a common at attitude today, an attitude I heard a lot when I was at Bible college, sadly. Of course, the oppression of women is wrong, but this is not what Paul is communicating within this passage. The more and more we listen to the voice of our culture, the more and more we will misunderstand and misconstrue what the Bible says, including this word. And the more and more passages like this will become sticks of lit dynamite into our carefully constructed cultural worldviews. So that's number three. Another response to this passage might be this. This passage is all about dot, dot, dot. I don't know what this passage is all about. Um, this is the one I'm most comfortable with. In fact, I would invite us all to start in this position today if we've not yet properly studied 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16. Forget your tradition. Forget your cultural preference. Forget your emotional inclinations towards this passage. Maybe you should begin from a position of humility and recognise today that the only thing you know is that you don't know. When I come to prepare for a sermon, you know, I'll read the passage and I'll write down questions in my sermon prep journal. I actually have one of those, it's quite sad. But I'll put these all on a mind map or on a list. 
Now, normally I would have about five or six questions when it came to a passage. This time, as I was preparing, I had 25 different questions. 25 questions. On average, about six. This week, 25. I don't think I've researched as much for a sermon as I have for this one. And yet, I stand here this morning no longer asking 25 questions. By God's grace, I understand this passage way more than I did before. And it's not that I don't have any questions anymore, because I do, but I have a grasp of it. And I'm actually really excited about sharing what it is that God has to say through his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through to 16. Or finally, maybe your response is none of these four. Maybe you feel you need to accommodate this passage within your life. Just get it over and done with and move on to something else. Sometimes we can read a verse or a chapter and it feels like going for a walk with a stone in your shoe. We just need to power through and keep going until it's over. I read of one pastor this week describing 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16 as like that story, we're going on a, on a bear hunt. We're going on a bear hunt, which contains that famous line, we can't go over it, we can't go, run, go under it, We've got to go through it. Our attitude can be like that. Let's just get through this. Let's get through this and let's move on to something else. Maybe a more modern day description of this passage would be that Daniel Bedingfield song, I've got to get through this. Well, that song's pretty old now. I'm probably showing my age. Some of you get no idea who Daniel Bedingfield is, which is totally fine. But let me encourage you. I don't want you to finish today's passage saying... I'm glad that's over and done with. I don't need to think about that passage anymore until I come across it again in my Bible reading plan. Instead, let me encourage you to begin and end our time today with the words of Paul to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, in verses 16 to 17, Paul says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or another way of putting that is this. 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 to 16 is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, this is just as much the word of God as Psalm 23, as John 3.16, as Ephesians chapter 1. So let's treat it that way. God has spoken through his word. Are you ready to listen today? There's a reason why we've titled this sermon Complementarity. And that's because complementarity is really the beating heart of what Paul says within this passage. Let me share the dictionary definition of complementarity. Because I'm aware of the fact it might sound like a new word. It might sound like quite a complicated word. But it's actually quite simple. And it's powerful as we think about God and how he works in the world. Complementarity is this, a relationship or situation in which two or more different things improve or emphasise each other's qualities. Let me just say that again. Complementarity is a relationship or situation in which two or more different things improve or emphasise each other's qualities. Now, when two different things complement each other, they they make each of those things better This is really the essence of what we're talking about. And before you think this passage is about head covenants, understand that this is a passage about difference. It's a passage about difference. 
And in particular, how God has designed difference and how God has created complementary difference to glorify his name and further the mission of the church. Paul here in this passage speaks most about the different roles that men and women have in the the gathered public worship. And he's pushing back against some people within the church who are trying to blur the differences between men and women, particularly in the context of this public worship gathering. And Paul is highlighting something that we have so easily forgotten in our culture today, that men and women are different. Surprise, surprise, men and women really are different. And as we look at the big picture, the New Testament identifies two areas where men and women are to express that difference. In the home, number one, and number two, in the church. And what we see here in this passage is Paul addressing the role of men and women in the home and in the church, both at the same time, because they both come together in the public worship gathering. During a public worship gathering, there is authority and submission between a husband and wife, and there is authority and submission between elders and the rest of the church. And in this instance, Paul is identifying the authority and submission issue between elders and women within the church. Paul wants people to have an accurate picture of the role of men and women in the home and in the church. And so in this passage, he draws on three areas to make this big point that there is a clear difference between men and women and that this difference should be embraced. This difference should be celebrated. We should have a joyful recognition of God's good design which should be in turn an act of worship to God. Paul highlights this difference between men and women as we see it in theology, number one, number two, in culture, and number three, in nature. Theology, culture, and nature. And you'll see that Paul points to this pattern of theology, culture, and nature in this order within our passage. So let's begin with this first point. Number one, theology, theology. And let's read verses 2 to 3 of our passage again with a particular focus on verse 3. Paul writes these words to the Corinthians. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And this is so important for us today. This might be the most important verse in the entire passage. Paul says, but I want you to know that Christ is ahead of every man and the man is ahead of the woman and God is ahead of Christ. So Paul wants this. Paul wants us to see the clear difference between men and women, but he first wants to ground this on theological foundations. And he does this by establishing a clear ladder of authority that exists from God to man to woman. Paul writes in verse 3 that God the Father is ahead of Christ. That's the first point. The second point is that Christ is ahead of man. And the third point is that man is the head of woman. Now, what does that mean when Paul says the head of? Because that phrase could take all sorts of different directions. We could understand that phrase in so many different and wrong ways, including a number of damaging ways. Well, in verse 3, Paul uses is the head of on three occasions in one verse. And what he is doing is bringing these three ideas together so that we can understand the relationship between man and woman in a much clearer way. Paul wants us to understand that the picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is in some way, it's in some way a picture of the relationship between man and woman. As God the Father and God the Son are both equal in the Godhead, they are both just as much God as the other. 
Also, man and woman are both equal. They are both made in God's image. They both have the same dignity, value and worth as the other. And let me say, people have often failed to see this because they misunderstand what Paul is saying here when he says the head of. And all of this is important because when Paul speaks of the head of, whether it's between God and Christ or man and woman, he is speaking of authority. He's speaking of authority, but it's an authority in terms of function, not an authority in terms of who they are within their being. God the Father and God the Son are equal in nature, but have different roles within the Godhead. The difference between them is a difference of their functional authority. And in the same way, man and woman are equal in nature, and yet have different roles within creation. Again, the difference between men and women is a difference in their functional authority. And as we see elsewhere in scripture, as has already been mentioned, the different roles between men and women apply to two particular contexts. The role of men and women in the home and the role of men and women in the church. So do not misunderstand this passage. Paul is not saying that all men have authority over all women. That would be unbiblical. No, what Paul is saying here is that husbands are a spiritual authority in the home and a select few qualified godly men known as elders or leaders are the spiritual authority in the church for which a woman are a part of. And in verse 3, Paul wants us to see that when this is done well, when this is done well, when this authority between man and woman is carried out in love, when the home and the church are led by godly and qualified men in humility, carrying a joy with this responsibility, when their service is done sacrificially, when there is a servant heart with husbands and with qualified elders in the home and the church respectively, then it acts as an arrow to God, to this relationship within the Godhead between God the Father and God the Son. The husband leads a wife, the husband leads a home. This is in some way a picture of God the Father leading God the Son. The elders lead the church, the elders love the church. Again, this is in some way a picture of God the Father leading God the Son. It's a picture of God. This is what Paul wants us to see. He wants us to understand that complementary differences between men and women have a theological foundation. And that these differences, when embraced well and carried out biblically, point more clearly towards this triune God. Which in turn should cause us to worship. When we see this done well, it should give us a greater glimpse of God it should cause us to worship. So Paul moves on and he speaks about complementary differences in another area, number two, in culture. So Paul believed that we understand better the different complementary roles between men and women when we look at certain parts of culture. And these different parts of culture demonstrate this well. When they demonstrate this well, it gives us a greater vision of God. And this is something that Paul brings out in verses 4 to 6 of our passage. Paul says this, Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonours his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, since that is a one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Paul highlights here the need for a visual difference between the role of men and women during public worship. This is so important for us as we understand this passage. Paul highlights here the need for a visual difference 
between the role of men and women during public worship. And so you might ask, why is point two not titled complementary difference in public worship? Why is it not titled public worship? We only ever understand why Paul gives this instruction about the different roles for men and women in public worship via a head covering when we first understand the ancient culture of Paul's day, and particularly the culture of Corinth, and the, the role of veils and head coverings within that culture. Schreiner, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, highlights this very helpfully, and he says this, for a woman not to wear such a covering in public in the first century may have had sexual connotations, suggesting the woman was sexually available. For instance, Lucius says in the work by Apelius, about their hair of women. My exclusive concern has always been with a person's head and hair to examine it intently first in public and enjoy it later at home. Schreiner continues, the main point of the text is clear. Women are to adorn themselves in a certain way, refusing to cover their heads sent a message in the culture of the day that the women were not relating properly to male leadership and Paul wants them to avoid offending others. So here we had a cultural expre expression right in the middle of public worship, men not wearing head coverings and women wearing head coverings. And this cultural expression was acting as an accurate picture of the good complementary difference between men and women as part of creation. And so Paul's argument is that because of this cultural expression of head coverings accurately reflects the different but complementary roles between men and women, then the Corinthians should maintain this head covering practice in the worship gathering. It's a useful visual tool for their culture. The result will be that people will have a better understanding of their roles as husbands and as wives and as elders in the wider church family for which women were a part of. Paul continues in verses 7 to 10, and here he wants us to understand that this complementary difference between men and women can be represented theologically and culturally both at the same time. So Paul says in verse 7, A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too women is the glory of man. For man did not come from women, but women came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of women, but women for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now that phrase, because of the angels, that's a difficult phrase for us to understand, but it most likely means that women should recognise the rightful examples of authority in their lives during times of public worship because the angels are present as we all gather in worship. This is something we find elsewhere in scripture. As we gather together in worship, angels are present. So this is what Paul is getting at here. But that's a side note. I just wanted to highlight this because it could easily distract us from the heart of what Paul is saying here. What Paul wants us to understand here in verses 7 to 10 is the reality of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 2 and in verses 20 to 23. That women came from man. This is what he is pointing us towards in this section here in 1 Corinthians. And so let's look together at Genesis 2 and in verses 20 to 23 to see where Paul gets us from, to see what Paul is getting at. So in this passage, Paul said, uh, Genesis it says, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man. 
and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. So Paul wants us to see that this theological reality that we find here in Genesis was expressed culturally in Corinth and elsewhere in the ancient world in the form of head coverings. Does that make sense? Paul wants us to see that this theological reality that we find in Genesis was expressed culturally in the form of head coverings within the context of Corinth and elsewhere in the ancient world. The head coverings acted as a symbol of this relational reality between men and women. As women came from man, from his rib, from his rib, women should therefore cover their head as a symbol of the authority between husband and wife and also between elder and church family. Paul then moves on and he provides a Corinthian church with a caveat in all of this. He's aware that people may take advantage of what he's saying and this has happened in church history. I think he's concerned that all that he is saying might lead to the oppression of women. And so he underlines that men and women have been and always will be equal. He says in verses 11 to 13, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as a woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So for Paul, the head coverings were the cultural expression of a theological reality. And because of this, the head coverings were to be kept in public worship on the condition that the Corinthian church recognised and celebrated that men and women were equal in the eyes of God. This was a fundamental caveat after all that Paul says. And Paul moves on from talking about this difference between men and women as we see it in culture and on to our next point. And it's nature, number three, nature. The difference between men and women as we see it in nature. Paul writes in verses 14 to 15, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Now Paul is not saying here that no matter who you are and no matter where you're from, no matter what period of time in history that you're in, it's a sin for a man to have long hair or it's a sin for a woman to have short hair. This is not what Paul is saying at all. Now what Paul is saying here is that our own nature tells us what a man is and what a woman is. And this leads to some form of commonly recognised cultural expression of masculinity and femininity in the particular context and period of history that we find ourselves in. In the time of Corinth, for a man to be a man, one of the characteristics was that they would not have long hair. And in the time of Corinth, for a woman to be a woman, one of the characteristics was that she would not have short hair, she would have long hair. So the natural instinct of the Corinthian within their context was to express manhood and womanhood in these particular ways. And so this is a call for us to see within our own context in Glasgow in 2021 what our natural instinct tells us about what is appropriate and what is inappropriate for men and for women today within our culture. Deep down we know how it is that men should be and how it is that women should also be. 
Despite all of the cultural pushback we receive right now, and we know this because as Paul says here, our nature tells us what a man should be and what a woman should be. Deep down we know that men and women are different. Deep down we know this. And we express this in a certain visible way within today's culture. We all do it because we all swim together in the same culture. We live and breathe within this culture every single day. And notice that today in the West, head coverings is not one of those visual symbols that differentiates between men and women. This is an ancient practice. This is also a Middle Eastern practice today. This means we're not obligated today in Scotland to have head coverings in public worship. What's right and appropriate for one culture in one period of time for a man or for a woman might be wrong and inappropriate in another culture in another period of time for a man or for a woman. Think, for example, of kilts in Scotland compared to wearing a skirt somewhere else. Completely different in two completely different cultures. A completely different approach. The key thing is that we know from nature that men and women are different, and so men and women will express themselves differently. You know, God loves, God loves difference, and he brings difference together as a means of displaying his goodness, his greatness, his beauty, as a means of displaying himself. Men and women are different because God is more glorified when they live, serve, and interact together as different creatures. And the difference we celebrate is a picture of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different and yet are one. Men and women are different and yet we are one. And so the head covering issue in this passage is simply a marker that identifies that men and women are different. And when we see this, I believe that it will cause us to worship God more clearly. It will cause us to see him more accurately. But maybe you're not convinced about the power and the beauty of difference today. And how God uses difference to glorify his name. Maybe you struggle with this idea of difference between men and women. Maybe you're pushing back on this. And particularly this idea of men having this servant authority over women in the church and in the home. Well, let me show you that there's a strong argument for complementarity. Complementary difference. And all that we see within our world. And all that we find within creation. And so why would God not establish this beautiful difference between men and women also. God creates difference in our world and he puts difference together in a complementary way so that each difference is enhanced and improved by the other, bringing greater glory to God, causing us to worship him more with all that we are. Let me just share a few examples of difference within creation. Earth and sky, land and rain, internal and external, invisible and visible, Sweet and savoury. Imagine you had a three-course meal and it was three courses of the same food. Where would the enjoyment be in that? We enjoy three-course meals because of the complementary difference that exists between sweet and savoury, large and small, food and drink, a few more for us, curves and lines, cyclical and linear, chaos and order, east and west, major and minor. And finally, if you know your biology, and I don't know my biology, but I've, I discovered this this week, you'll know that in DNA, the bases and the double helix are complementary. If adenine, if that's how you pronounce it, is in one strand, then the opposite thymine will be in the other strand. And if cytosine is in one strand, the opposite guanine will be in the other. 
So even within our DNA, the building blocks of life itself, we have complementary difference. It's essential to life itself. So embrace the fact that difference is a good thing and that God uses difference in creation and that God uses difference between men and women as we see in our passage to glorify his name. Think about the church family. Think about how different we are. And yet we all worship together. We all fulfill this common objective of making disciples and planting churches. It's incredible when you think about it. Look at what Brett McCracken says about the importance of contrast for human flourishing. Brett says this, Imagine if the earth were entirely ocean with no visible land. Imagine if every painting in the Louvre were monochrome. Imagine if we could only taste salty things or only hear major chords. Contrast is fundamental to what we find beautiful. It is central to the most spellbinding painting, paintings, the most memorable culinary experiences, the most stirring symphonies. Why are humans universally drawn to sunrises and sunsets as the most picturesque and strangely transcendent moments of the day? Because they are the moments of most intense contrast between light day and dark night. Amen. So I hope we see what's going on within this passage. Paul goes very hard on this head covering issue. It's most of his focus. But it's because he wants people to see the power and the beauty of complementary difference between men and women. And this is powerful and beautiful because we have a job to do together as men and women within the world. And men can only live this call upon their lives with the help of women. And women can only live this call upon their lives with the help of men. As we serve one another in the church and within the home. What does this call look like? Well, let me say, this call is lived out together for the glory of God. When, number one, we recognise our cultural mandate. We recognise our cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is some of the, the final words from God to the man and the woman in the garden. This is what God was calling them to do in the creation. In Genesis 1 and in verse 28, we read these words. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. In other words, get busy. Get busy being men and women together in the world that I've given you. Make the most of the creation that is before you. This mandate is still upon us today. And it's impossible for men to fulfill this cultural mandate without women. It's impossible for women to fulfill this cultural mandate without men. It's the first one, we recognise our cultural mandate. Number two, we also fulfill our God-given call as men and women when we step into the Great Commission. We step into the Great Commission. Jesus speaks to the entire church, men and women together. And he says in Matthew 28 and in verses 18 to 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I feel like I'm reading that passage every single week and that's no bad thing because this is our call uh, from God uh, upon our lives. But it would be utterly impossible to fulfill the Great Commission with only, only women or with only men. God has created us as different because we need one another. We bring out the best in each other. And when we bring out the best in each other, we become the people he calls us to be. And we in turn fulfill this call to make disciples who make disciples 
for his glory and for our good. Finally, we fulfill our God-given call as men and women, men and women, when number three, we look forward to the new creation. We look forward to the new creation. In Revelation 21, and in verses 3 to 4, we read these powerful words. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, a.k.a. men and women, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, a.k.a. men and women, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Together as men and women, we have this great hope of a new creation. He really is, he really is going to wipe away every tear, every single tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Pain and suffering and grief will be no more. The redeemed men and women of God have this amazing assurance of eternity with Jesus. We will be together as men and women and we will be together as one. This should be our focus. Not on anything that might divide men and women. Not on anything that might separate us from that incredible vision of Revelation 21. This should be our focus. Men and women, let us come together, recognising our differences, embracing our differences, and focusing on this hope, this promise of a new creation. Now, I know we've examined a lot this morning. Um, I hope we see the bigger theological truth behind this issue of head coverings and corporate worship. I hope we see that this passage is ultimately not really about head coverings. When you dig deep enough and carefully enough, the deeper reality is that God has made us different. Let's accept our difference and live in his good design because he really does know what is best for us. We do not know what is best for us. God knows what is best for us because he created us and he gave us a purpose. Paul finishes this passage with these words in verse 16. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Paul is so certain about what he is saying here. And I honestly believe this is so important for us as we think about our own church. We have an opportunity at Denison Baptist to be certain about his word, to live out the principles of this passage, to embrace the difference between men and women. And imagine, imagine if we did this in a way that was deeply biblical, that was characterised by love, that pointed towards God himself, towards this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Imagine we celebrated the fact that as men and women, we are different. We have different roles and that God is going to use us differently within the life of the church. And as we do that together, we fulfill this singular mission. Imagine that was our vision and imagine that's how we lived as a church family. My hunch is, my hunch is that non-Christians would see this and they would say that not only is this one of the most beautiful and most powerful pictures of humanity that they have ever seen. But I think they would also experience something. I believe that God would touch them, that the secrets of their heart would be revealed, that they would fall face down and worship God, that they would cry out, God really is among you. May it be so within our churches, within this church, Denison Baptist. Let's pray together as we reflect on all that God has said to us. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that, that you are here amongst us and we thank you for that amazing promise. And Lord, we pray that, that your spirit would continue to work and continue to convict and continue to challenge. Lord, forgive us for the, the cultural strongholds that we have built up in our lives that have meant that we have been numb to what your Bible says, to what your word says. And we pray, Lord, that, that you would, in this time, break down these, these cultural barriers and let your word flood our hearts and minds so that we respond in obedience to what your word says. And that we would realise that this is no burden for us at all. To, to recognise our difference is to embrace the reality of who you are and what you have done for us. And to live a life that is more satisfying and more joyful than any other life. So we come before you today, Lord, and we ask that you would speak to us as we have reflected upon this passage. And as we now respond in worship. And we ask this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Love you guys. God bless.